Ariana, Gus, Daria, Nick, Lucas, Lainey, You did very well on your second round of speeches. I think I could notice a general improvement from the first speech, although things did start off well. We have some good public speakers in the group here. Some of our top scores on the uh, second speech included a 99 by Isaac Cooper. Well done, sir. And we had three students that got a 98. Ariana, Naomi, and Hawkins. So, great job. Woo! I didn't do an average, but I'll figure that out. I don't know what the average was. Maybe I'll send that out when I send out the end of the semester grades here in a few weeks. So, one of the, a few observations on your second round of speeches as I went over all of the notes I'd made while you were speaking. Many of you did a great job of tying your conclusion back into your intro. I want to continue to encourage you to use that technique. It's a great way of just creating symmetry in your speech. And it reminds people of what you started off with. So keep, keep working on, on doing that with your short speeches in the future. And then also, I wanted to mention that several of you would have benefited by memorizing the introduction instead of reading it off of your cards. If you have a quote or something along those lines, if you can establish eye contact with your first part of your speech, that sets a good tone. But if you read your introduction from your notes, then you're missing out on that key initial contact with your audience. And so when you're preparing your speech, memorize your intro so that you can have that eye contact right at the beginning. And that was several times I noticed that. Eye contact is important. It's something that I myself can improve upon. Some of you that did excellent jobs in your speeches still also have area where you could improve on the eye contact. And if you have notes, it's very easy to over-rely on your notes. And so you have to deliberately make up your mind that I'm not engaging with my notes, I'm engaging with my audience. And that's where the eye contact comes in. The more you practice your speech, the less reliant you'll be on your notes. And also, when you're making your notes, make sure that you don't put too much information on them. Remember how I taught you to just do a keyword outline. So when you glance at your notes, you just see your next keyword to remind yourself where you're going. And you're not having a full sentence that you have to read and say, okay, that's what I'm, okay. Uh, but just that keyword that'll jog your memory. That way you can stick with your audience and not get your notes in between you and your audience so much, right? Um, also, uh, I want to continue to re-emphasize the importance of making your main points clear. Uh, Elise just did a great job of that in her speech, in the intro, and at the end. Make your main points clear, and also over-clarity over on your transitions. So when you're going from one main point to another main point, say, hey, we just talked about this uh, big idea, now we're going to be moving on to this. And you can even talk about the connection between them or help people understand the flow of where your main points are going. These transitions are key to keep your audience with you so that you don't just sound like you're rambling and meandering, but that they can tell the structure of your speech by 
clearly presenting the main points in the intro and then clearly having transitions from main point to main point in the body of your speech. Then one other thing I wanted to say about the organization of the speech is, is that you've got to have a planned conclusion. So don't just say, well, the conclusion will come to me uh, while I'm speaking and I'll wing it. Now you've got you to gotta have the planned conclusion, the goal that you're driving the speech towards. So don't end the speech with, you know, that's it, or, you know, I'm done, or something like that. But you've got to end with a planned bang, something that is going to make that impact that you've been building up to. It's the, it's the climax. It's a really important part of the speech. Some of you had repetitive hand movements when we're talking about gestures, and I think this is something that we all fall into, is that we just do the same hand motions uh, over and over again. And so you have to practice your hand motions in a mirror. And it's good to practice in front of a mirror or to videotape yourself, like we've been doing, so you can see what you look like when you're speaking. I don't really like watching myself speak because I don't think I'm the best at gestures and I don't like the way I do a lot of my gestures, so it's something that I could improve upon. And we'll always keep improving. I don't think, well, it's good enough. But instead, have that goal that I'm always going to keep on improving in all areas that are important. And then, a couple other things here. Try not to refer to your notes at any time during your speech or to play with them. I saw that happening a little bit where your hands would play with your speech or some you'd make a verbal reference to your notes or something along those lines. Uh, don't do that. Uh, make your notes as invisible as possible. Don't draw any attention to them that doesn't have to be drawn. You looking at them and glancing at them is, is all the attention you want on your notes. You want the attention to be on you and the connection between you and your audience. Some of the girls uh, need to speak up a little bit more. Now, for those who are young and have excellent hearing, it probably wasn't a problem for you, but for an older guy like me who's listened to too much loud music in my life, I, I need you to speak up when you're on stage and when you're addressing a group. You don't have to be yelling, but you do have to make yourself clear and make that projection and not be talking in the normal voice that you would have if someone was right in front of you, but you're speaking to a group, you speak with a louder volume and project more. Last thing I wanted to mention was some of you were light on the content or the research, the data in your speech, and so just make sure that when you are practicing your speech, you time yourself, and if you're significantly under time, that means you don't have enough content in your speech, so you need to do more research, and it's better to have too much research and have to cut things out than to have too little and not have anything to say. And when I'm preparing my weekly orations, I end up with tons of stuff that goes on the cutting room floor. You know, use the analogy of the movie makers, that the editor who's putting together the final copy of the film, you can either save the film or destroy the film in the edit. And knowing what to put in and what to take out is key. But if you only have a minimal amount of film that you've shot, well, you've got to use whatever you've got, whether it's good or not. But if you've got too much uh, material, that's actually a good problem because then you can just save the best and you can cut out the stuff that doesn't need to be in there. So just keep that in mind when you're preparing a speech or a presentation. Better to have too much and have to cut stuff out than have too little and have to use stuff that's really not very good. 
Alright, uh, then one word on the illustrated oratories, for those of you who did illustrated oratory. Make sure that when you're doing your presentation that you don't turn your back on your audience and look at your illustrations. Never turn your back on your audience. Uh, there's a TV in the back, and so if you're in a situation like this, you can read your stuff off the back. But if there's not a screen in the back and you've only got a, a board or a screen behind you, the key is to step back and look over your shoulder rather than turning around. Uh, so step back and look over your shoulder if you need to. Never turn your back on your audience. Uh, you never know what they'll do to you. <laughs> and then the other thing I wanted to mention about the illustrated oratory is if you have a complicated slide with a chart or a lot of information on it, you either need to take the time to explain everything that is on the chart or don't use it. If you have time and that's an important part of your presentation, then go ahead and use a complicated chart. Uh, if you don't have time, don't put it up there because people are going to be reading your chart and they won't be listening to you. And the point of your presentation is for them to be listening to you. Always maintain that connection with your audience and you don't want a complicated visual to come between you and your audience. So keep that in mind when planning an illustrated oratory. So those were the thoughts that I had as I looked over my notes on all of your speeches. But this week you also had the opportunity to watch yourself and to grade yourself on your speech. So as you did that, are there any comments or uh, thoughts that you had, any questions that you might pose as a result of your viewing yourself in the third person. This might be the first time some of you got to, to see yourself give a speech. Uh, any observations or thoughts that you'd want to share with the group from that experience? Well, hopefully it was a useful exercise for you and I encourage you to continue to look for opportunities to do that in the future. Either listen to yourself on a recording or watch yourself on a video and that's going to help you to become a better public speaker as well. Alright, so go ahead and grab your textbooks, the Bible interpretation or study to show yourself approved. Your assignment for this week was chapter 9 together with the quiz on chapter 9. So let's take a look at that. Now I'd like you to raise your hand if you looked up all the verses in the section titles in chapter 9. That would be Genesis 12, 13, and 15, Isaiah 11, Matthew 16, so on, Romans 11, Ephesians 3. Raise your hand if you did the assignment fully as we instructed with this book and you had your Bible open and you read those verses as you were reading through the chapter. Let me see the hands. Kind of, sort of, a few. Alright, well, you never know when I'm going to call you out on things like this. So, please do. You've uh, just got a few chapters left in the book. Finish it out strong and form those good habits of getting your nose into the text so that you can see for yourself whether or not the points that the author is making are fair and are based upon the text. You've got to think more than you read. You've got to think more than you read, otherwise you are not being a critical thinker. 
If you are reading without stopping and thinking about what you're reading, well, you are getting input, but you are not engaging with that input in a critical manner. And I want you to learn how to be critical thinkers. That's why I love this Faraday quote. See it once again. Michael Faraday said, I will simply express my strong belief that that point of self-education, which consists in teaching the mind to resist its desires and inclinations until they are proved to be right, is the most important of all, not only in things of natural philosophy, science, but in every department of daily life. Notice he's talking about what is most important in self-education. Self-education is a great phrase, a great concept, that I've tried to emphasize recently to you, and I want to re-emphasize again, that education isn't so much something that is given to you, but something that you take. And you have been given a lot of opportunities for education, but it's up to you what you do with those opportunities for education. And so self-education is probably the most important aspect of education, that ultimately you are responsible for what you know, how you think, and what kind of person you become through your education process. So when you're thinking about your responsibility, your goal in self-education, I would recommend to you this thought by Faraday, Faraday, that you need to, first of all, teach your mind to resist its desires and inclinations. That you don't just think what is poured into you, or you don't just think what your group thinks, you don't just think what you want to think or what your family thinks without careful reflection, without thinking it through. Is it logical? Does it make sense? Is it according to the data? Does it produce good results? Is it biblical? That's the most important of those questions since we know that God's word is truth. And so in areas of theology, not just in science, but in every department of life, theology, the, the king of the sciences, the most important of all science, is the knowledge of God, then as you self-educate yourself, sorry about the repetition, in theology, you've got to teach your mind to resist its desires and inclinations until they are proved to be right. And so, that brings us to the principles for biblical interpretation. You need to meditate, pray, obey, and be open. Be open means that you are teachable. That you don't just say, well, I believe this because this is what I've been told by the people that I care about. But instead, you are open to what does the Bible actually say. And so for that, you have to have your Bible open. You have to read it. You have to understand it for yourself. So as you're going through this book, remember, look up the passages that he's talking about on your phone, on your printed Bible, however you want to do it. You've got to have your eyes on the text. Otherwise, the points that he's making won't hit home. They won't, you won't be able to process and think them through critically because he's assuming that you're looking at this. He's not going to tell you everything you need to know in the text. He's assuming that you are interacting with the text and what he's saying about it. And that is what is going to allow you then to evaluate whether or not what he's saying is good and right. Most of what he says, I think, is good and right. But in all things, there is error. In all things, there is imperfection. And so our goal is to be thinking for ourselves. So let's take a look then at chapter 9. And the main principle here, I think the only principle in chapter 9, was number 19. 
which is differentiate between Israel and the church. Now, of course, you know, if you looked in the book, this chart has more than 19. Uh, this all that would you know, fit here easily, and I thought that was enough. But next week, I'll extend it so that we get principles 20 and so on. So as we come to principle number 19, you see that it is following the understanding of the biblical covenants. And that's what we really focused on last time, number 18, in the previous chapter, about understanding the biblical covenants. And the biblical covenants are not the same thing as covenant theology. That's one of the key points I made, is that the biblical covenants are the covenants that are actually called covenants in the Bible, not the covenant category that people create because of their theological system. And so we're not talking about the covenant of works versus the covenant of grace. When we're talking about the biblical covenants, we're talking about the Noahic covenant. We're talking about the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant. Those passages in scripture that are foundational for understanding God's dealings with mankind that he himself calls a covenant. And the author of our book falls into the same error of creating covenants that are not in the Bible as covenants in order to fit his system of theology. And we want to avoid that. So I think you stick with biblical terminology as much as possible because that's going to help you to think biblically. The terms that you think in are really going to affect how you think about an issue. And so you have to examine the terminology and say, is this the proper terminology? Or should we use different terminology? And you see that in society, speaking out manipulation by the aristocracy, that the, the terms that they use, they use for very deliberate reasons, because they're trying to get you to think about things the way that they want you to think about it. And so they give names to things that the media starts using. And then the media gets those terms in everyone's mind and they start talking in those terms and that is what colors the conversation and moves it in their direction. It's a subtle technique for manipulation. So you have to be aware of the terms that we use and go back and examine those according to scripture as well. Now, let's go ahead and get into the questions here in the exam. So if you've got your exam questions in front of you, We'll read them. I think last time we did the guys, so we'll start over here with the gals on the exam questions. Let's start here with Ariana for question number one. Uh, so if you've got, got your questions in front of you, I'll, I'll read it and you let me know what you've got as the answer. Principle 19. When did the church begin? A. When God established his covenant with Abraham. B. When Moses received the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. C, at the Feast of Pentecost, recorded in Acts 2, or D, at the sacrifice of Isaac, recorded in Genesis 22. What did you have for that? I had C. Very good. That's the correct answer. C, at the Feast of Pentecost, recorded in Acts 2. So here, once again, let me emphasize the importance of definitions. What is the church? When did the church begin? That's part of the definition, part of our understanding of the church, is understanding when it began what it is composed of, what does it mean? And so here you're going to see that the de very definition of the church, which is such an important idea, ecclesiology is a, a massive category, that's the study of the church in systematic theology, and yet there's different definitions as to what the church is. So you have to examine the definitions and say, well, which one is right? And that takes some work, it takes some critical thinking, and you don't just wanna be lazy about it, you wanna know the truth. 
And so be careful how you define things and what definitions you accept. Number two, the distinction between the church and Israel. Here, Iris will call on you for this one. A is not acknowledged in covenant theology. B is emphasized by dispensationalists. C is irrelevant with respect to hermeneutics. D, both A and B. What did you have? D. What's that? D. Yeah, D is what I had also. So, covenant theology does not make a strong distinction between the church and Israel in general. Perhaps there are some covenant theologians who have some minor distinctions between it. We're painting with a broad brush here because otherwise we wouldn't get any painting done. And so, covenant theology disemphasizes the distinction between the church and Israel, whereas dispensationalists strongly emphasize the distinction between the church and Israel. Now, when you're talking about distinction, you're saying that they're, they're distinct, they're different entities. Now, distinct entities can have things in common. Like, at least you are a distinct person from me. But because I'm your father and you're my daughter, we have a lot in common. So it's not that there's nothing in common between Elise and Timothy, but it's that we are separate, we are distinct as individuals. And so understanding what is in common between Israel and the church and what is different, understanding them as distinct entities is important and I think is biblical and is going to affect how you read the Bible in uh, especially prophetic context. Understanding what is God's plan for the future for Israel, what is God's plan in the future for the church, but it has other areas of ramification as well. Particularly, I'd want to point out on what is the mission of the church. I was just talking about this with Jamie the other night, last night. And so, if you understand Israel and the church as not being distinct, well then you're going to have some confusion as to what is the purpose of the church, because you're going to confuse the purpose of Israel with the purpose of the church, and you're going to read the Bible differently on key passages, including... The Great Commission. The Great Commission is our marching orders. This is what the church is supposed to do. What is our mission in the world? Now, you can be saved and be confused on what our mission is. I'm not saying covenant theologians are not saved, but I'm saying covenant theologians are confused about what the mission of the church is in many instances. And therefore, that's a serious problem. We need to know what our mission is. That's why these things are worth talking about. They're worth investigating. They're worth carefully thinking about and discussing out of love and respect for one another. So, let's go on then to number three, uh, Elise Schmidt. The Abrahamic covenant is still valid for Israel today, A. B is allegorized by dispensationalists. C, only applied to Abraham personally. Or D, makes all mankind children of Abraham. What's the correct answer for number three? I had A. That's what I have. A is that the Abrahamic covenant is still valid for Israel today. Now, when you're thinking about the Abrahamic Covenant, there's three major aspects of the Abrahamic Covenant. You can go back and read it in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. This is something that is reiterated multiple times in, early on in the book of Genesis. And it's a foundation for understanding the rest of Scripture. If you misunderstand the foundation of the Abrahamic Covenant, then that's going to cause you to read the rest of the Bible uh, askew and askance. And so you want to be really careful in understanding things like the Abrahamic Covenant and make sure that what you're being taught is the right way of understanding it. What's our Awana verse in Timothy say? 
It says that we need to present ourselves to God as approved workmen who do not need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And so if we get off on the foundation, then that little bit of being off over the long run gets us way off course as we continue down through progressive revelation. So we want to be particularly careful with things like the Abrahamic covenant, very important part of scripture, very foundational. And dispensational theologians who are using a literal interpretation of the promises to Israel and the Old Testament scriptures, not allegorizing them for the church. We recognize that the Abrahamic covenant is still valid for Israel, that nation that's still in the world today. You can go visit Israel, that God's covenant with them is still valid today. Important principle there. Number four, uh, at least Hanklee. Ezekiel's vision of the temple in Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48 is which of those four? Uh-huh. What does your sister have for you? She had, this is number four, right? Yeah, number four. She had A. Well, very good. You helped her out. That's what I had. Ezekiel's temple in 40 through 48 will be literally fulfilled in the future. Why do we believe that? Well, because it contains prophecies about Israel that have never happened before. And so if they haven't happened yet... Well, then a literal understanding of those prophecies says, well, they must be still yet to happen in the future. A non-literal reading would say, well, perhaps they're being fulfilled in some non-literal way, some spiritual way, some allegorical way in the present age, uh, the spiritual blessings that we have as a church. So there's different ways of reading whole sections of the Bible, Ezekiel 40 through 48. You probably never read Ezekiel 40 through 48. It's probably not on your radar, but every word of God is important. Every word of God is tested and tried, and we want to be able to handle it accurately so that we can be those unashamed workmen. What's the right way of understanding Ezekiel 40 through 48 is not an unimportant question. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20. This one is for Petra. Indicates that the church is built on the foundation of what? A, B, C, or D? D. That's what I have. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now here's a follow-up question for anybody that wants to think through this with me. You can open up your Bibles if you like. How does Ephesians 2.20 show that the church did not exist in the Old Testament? Ephesians 2.20 indicates that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So, in light of that, how does Ephesians 2.20 show that the church did not exist in the Old Testament? What do you thought, Sam? Um, it says it's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, and then especially Christ Jesus himself being the them. Right. As the apostles for Christ Jesus um, were. Right. So they weren't uh, Old Testament personalities, but uh, Jesus Christ was born in 4 BC. The apostles are New Testament. So if that's the foundation, well, the foundation is the first thing that you put down for a building, right? Uh, if it said maybe the apostles and prophets were the roof of the building, well, then you might think, well, that would mean that this is all being built upon what came before, and that's the Old Testament that came before. 
But the, Paul says, no, that the church is founded upon the apostles and prophets, indicating this is a new thing. This is something that did not exist before. So I think Ephesians 2.20 is a key verse there for understanding the difference between Israel and the church. Old Testament, New Testament, peoples. Uh, all right, number six then. Moving along, Laney. A mystery is a truth that was concealed in the Old Testament, but is what? I had A. 6A is now fully revealed in the New Testament with Christ coming. That's right. So when the New Testament is talking about a mystery, it's talking about something that was concealed, but is now revealed. So, now revealed. That's a, the New Testament idea of mystery. It's not something that is yet to be revealed at Christ's second coming. It's not uh, something that we don't fully understand or the prophets didn't understand. Uh, it's not something that was a mystery because Israel was disobedient. It was just truth that God had not yet revealed, but that now he has revealed in this age. Number seven. Go back to Naomi. The church is made up of A, only Gentiles, B, Jews from the first century and Gentiles, C, Jews and Gentiles, or D, believers from all time. Which did you have? I had B, not, not, not confident in that answer. Well, I, I think a lot of Christians would say D, but the, the text presented the viewpoint that it is C, uh, Jews and Gentiles. Not just Jews from the first century. Think, well, you know, Paul, he was a Jew, and he was a part of the church, but there's no Jews in the church today. Now, there are Jews in the church today. Not a lot, but there are a number of Jews who are believers in Christ, and they're a part of the church. So, Jews and Gentiles together. The best book on ecclesiology in the Bible is Ephesians. Uh, Ephesians has a lot of teaching on the nature of the church and what God has done. It's the unique contribution of that book. Each book of the Bible has a, a purpose, a contribution to make towards our understanding of God's revelation theology. Ephesians focuses on the nature of the church. And so that's why we refer to Ephesians 2.20 and here the Jews and the Gentiles together is a key theme also of the book of Ephesians. All right, then number eight, Daria. The, blessing of, the blessings of the new covenant, plural, are solely for Israel when they eventually repent, were only enjoyed by believers in Christ's generation, will never be granted to Israel due to their rejection of Christ, or are currently being enjoyed by the church. What did you have? D. I had uh, D as well. So, the new covenant... Are, is promised in the Old Testament, particularly in the uh, latter prophets. Jeremiah has a passage about the New Covenant. Ezekiel has a passage about the New Covenant. There are truths of the New Covenant that are also revealed in Isaiah, although he doesn't call it a covenant. But you can see he's referring to the same things that Ezekiel and Jeremiah are referring to when they talk about the New Covenant. And then Christ, when he came, he said, as we remember from the communion table, that this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So Jesus refers to the new covenant being inaugurated through his death on the cross. And so the new covenant, it's something that was promised in the ancient Israelite scriptures, but it is 
founded upon the blood of Jesus Christ. And these blessings were originally promised to Israel. But now they can be extended beyond Israel to other peoples by nature of union with Christ. That's an important theological concept to understand. Union with Christ is the source of all spiritual blessings. Not only for Israelites, but also for Gentiles. And by union with Christ, by being baptized into Christ in that spiritual baptism, where your spirit is immersed into Christ, therefore, as you, as you have union with Christ, therefore, all of the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant is able to be transferred to you by nature of your union with Christ. Okay? So... Let's take the example of marriage. Marriage is something that brings union between two people. So you've got the rich child heir of a vast fortune marrying the, the poor girl. And so when she becomes married to the rich guy, then she becomes an heir of all of the things that he is an heir of. And so as the church is married to Jesus Christ, as the scripture uses that metaphor, Therefore, all of the blessings that God gives to Jesus, he also gives to us by nature of our union with Christ. And so that helps you understand how is it that the new covenant that was promised to Israel is able to be enjoyed by non-Israelites? Well, it's by this marriage union with the ultimate Israelite, Jesus Christ himself. Hopefully that helps you understand our participation in the covenants of promise, which is really the, the, the big idea there in understanding the nature of the church in Ephesians. That God has brought Jew and Gentile together in one body in Christ. Christ is the one who forms this new unity in the church. Alright, let's see. That was number eight. So then number nine. Uh, moving on here. Who is the seed of Abraham in Galatians 3.16? Is it the New Testament believers, Christ, Isaac, or believers living in Galatia? What did you have? B, Christ. The seed of Abraham is Christ. That's what I had also uh, in Galatians 3.16. So that's where it's important to have Galatians open, be reading the context of Galatians 3.16 and say, well, is that true? I mean, just because this guy says the seed of Christ in Galatians 3.16 is Christ, that doesn't make it so. You got to look and see for yourself. Otherwise, uh, there's a lot of deception. There's uh, people being deceived and deceiving others when it comes to biblical doctrine. So you, you've got to look for yourself and be good Bereans. Alright, then finally number 10. Dispensational theology and covenant theology. Um, I'll do this one since we've, we've gone through all the guys and gals. Dispensational theology and covenant theology. A. Agree only on the fact that God created the world in six days. B. Differ about tithing and which days to worship on. C, disagree on every major Bible doctrine. And D, agree on essential doctrines like salvation through Christ. The answer here is D, that my covenant theologian brothers and dispensationalists like I, we agree on faith in Christ apart from works for salvation. No sacramental system that we have to go through, but just by hearing the word of the gospel and believing it, we are saved knowing that Jesus is the Son of God who died on the cross and was raised again. That is the most essential doctrine. But I really don't like the phrase essential doctrine because then it implies that other doctrines are non-essential. 
And there are no non-essential doctrines uh, in one sense. Instead, I prefer that you think about it the way that he talked about it in another part of his book, which was better, where he says you have to learn to distinguish between uh, what is more critical and what is less critical. Now, I like how he states it here in Principle 16 because notice they're both critical. There's nothing that's not critical in the Bible. Everything in the Bible is important. So I say between what is more important and less important, but it's all important. And I think sometimes Christians forget that. We're like, well, this is what's important, and that means this stuff is not important. And that's the wrong way to think about it. Everything in the Bible is important. All theology, all doctrine is important. Some is more important than others. But that doesn't imply that something is unimportant or uh, not critical for the success of the church. And I think that's something that we need to keep in mind as believers, is that when we're talking about what's critical or what's important, we're not just talking about for you to get to heaven. That's kind of a selfish way of looking at things. So, well, the only thing that's important is that I get to heaven. Who cares about everything else? Um, you know, me going to heaven is very important to me, but it's not that important to you. I mean, I'm, I hope that it's somewhat important to you, but it's not the most important thing in the world to you what happens to me. And likewise, sadly, uh, that's just the way we are. But when we're looking at things objectively, the most important thing is what's important to God. And what's important to God is not just that we go to heaven, but that we do the work that God has called us to do. That we have healthy churches, that we have healthy Christians, that we're evangelizing the world according to the Great Commission. And so everything in Scripture is designed to help the church be healthy and to do our, our work. And that's why we can't say, well, this isn't important, or that's not important, because it doesn't have an impact on whether or not I go to heaven. Well, there's more to life than whether or not you go to heaven. Like doing God's will and accomplishing his work. That's kind of important. <clears throat> so don't let, the, don't let the Christian culture confuse you and make you think that if it doesn't relate to personal salvation, it's not important. You'll get that a lot. I've gotten that a lot. Then you've got to think clearly. Say, wait a second. What are the presuppositions here? Is that really the way that God looks at it? Is that really the way the scripture speaks about it? That's why it's so great to have the Bible. We have a yardstick to measure things by. We don't just have to be bound by our, our Christian culture and say, well, this is what my Christian culture believes, so we're just going along with the flow. That's the way the world is. The world just goes along with the flow of whatever culture says. Uh, Christians have a standard. We have a yardstick by which to judge truth and say, this is true because it is according to the standard. So don't just be blown about by every wind of doctrine, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Reject that which is not the truth. Alright, so then, as we look at the essay question, which question was it that you had at the end of your chapter in the new, in the new book? What do you have, Lori, for the... Uh, explain how the blessings of okay. God's unconditional covenants with Israel apply to the church. Okay, so I always have two questions, but when they printed it a second time, they usually just give you the first question, I think. So the question is, explain how the blessings of God's unconditional covenants with Israel apply to the church. What are the unconditional covenants of God with Israel? Anybody have one? Yeah? Like Abrahamic? Good. Yeah, that would be the, the main unconditional covenant that God made with Israel. If you go back to the Noahic covenant, well, that's not a covenant that God made with Israel because Israel didn't exist yet. 
The Noahic covenant is a covenant that God made with all mankind, Noah being the representative of mankind. Uh, so we're talking about the covenants that God made with Israel. The first one you go back to is the Abrahamic covenant. Now he calls it an unconditional covenant. And so that gets into all that theology about conditional versus unconditional covenants. And then you've got to examine the scriptures and find out, is that the right category? Is that the right way to, to refer to these uh, covenants? Uh, and it takes, takes some work. It takes some, some diligence there to make sure you're handling accurately the word of truth on understanding the covenants. Uh, what would, would there be in any other unconditional covenants? I mean, he, he would seem to imply it by his statement here. What else would uh, the author consider to be an unconditional covenant that God made with Israel? Yeah? Yeah? Mosaic. Uh, no. Uh, he would put the Mosaic covenant in the category of a conditional covenant. Okay. If you obey me, then you get these blessings. But if you disobey the covenant, then these curses come upon you. So... The, the blessings of the covenant are conditioned upon them doing their part in the covenant. Uh, Isaac? Yeah, the new covenant would be a key example of an unconditional covenant. Because if you go back and you read those passages, there's no, if you do this, Israel, then I'm going to do this. It's just God saying, I'm going to do this. So when, when God makes a covenant where his action is not conditioned upon the response of Israel, but he just says, I promise, I make this covenant, that I'm going to do this. That's an unconditional covenant. Um, so, how do the blessings of God's unconditional covenants with Israel apply to the church? We talked about this earlier. What, what, how would you explain it in your own words? Or how did you explain it in your own words? Anybody want to read their answer? I have a question. Yeah. So, would uh, the in Genesis the promise the promise of the head crusher? Yes. Be a, a unconditional. Uh, you could call it a unconditional promise. Promise. Uh, yeah, and that there the difference between a promise and a covenant is a matter of terminology. Um. But yeah, it does seem like that's an unconditional promise, there. and the promises of Scripture are very important. And they tie into the covenants. They really do connect. Um, so how, how do we, as non-Israelites, participate in the blessings of these covenants that God made with Israel? What did you, what did you have for that, guys? Gals? Yep? We're still allowed to enter the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, how? Through Christ's blood. Uh-huh, exactly. That's what we were going back to before, is that it's in Christ that these blessings come to us. Because Christ was an Israelite. And he's the faithful Israelite. He's the obedient Israelite. And so God gives all the blessings of his covenants to Christ. And by our connection with him, therefore, we participate in that. So, in Christ is the key phrase that you'd want in response to the, the, the essay question there in chapter 9. Through Christ, in Christ by union with Christ, something along those lines as to how these apply to the church. All right. Um, so with the time that we have left, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you your assignment for next time because that's important. And then I'm going to give you some time for research. So I don't know how many of you got your observation paper. I'll, I'll check that after class uh, completed. And then the next thing that you're going to want to do in your Bible study is to do your 
lexical and syntactical work. Lexical means that you're... Who set this up? Where's my eraser? <laughs> no, no, sorry. Lexical means having to do with the words. A lexicon is another word for a dictionary. So you want to study the words that are in your passage, make sure you understand the definitions of the words, like we talked about how important definitions are. And then the syntax is the grammar of the passage. So understanding the connecting words like but or and, understanding the verb tenses, if it's past tense verb, future, uh, those are things that are important to observe. So you're going to be analyzing the words and the grammar, the lexical and syntactical analysis of your text. So to do that, you're going to need some, some tools, some help. For lexical work, the concordance is very good, but also a study Bible is very good. A study Bible will often give you the definition of key words in your text. And so use the study Bibles, use the concordance, use the commentaries that are over there. Commentaries will have information on the grammar of the passage. They'll talk about the, the verb tenses or the structure of the sentences. They'll uh, also have lexical work. They'll point out the meaning of keywords in the commentaries. So you can use commentaries, the study Bibles, the concordances for your lexical and syntactical work, and any other work that you want to do. Uh, all of this uh, little library over here is available for you. And if you have questions, I'll be here. I'll stick around as long as you need me to stick around today to help with those tools. If you don't have time to do it today, then we're going to make it available again next week. I was here at 7.30 this morning, as I promised. And so anyone that wanted to come early and use the text, uh, we had that time available. And then after class as well. So I know you all don't have theological libraries necessarily at home. And so that's why I want you to be able to make use of this time. And I'll try to set aside more time in class next week. So I'm going to give you a couple weeks here to do your lexical and syntactical work. Since I didn't give you a lot of time to get it done today. And you didn't even really come prepared to do that. So I'll send out more information in an email on what your upcoming assignment is. But hopefully through the process of your observations and your questions, that's going to set you up to want to dig into the text through concordance and other study tools to be able to answer some of those questions, be able to look a little bit deeper into the text. So your assignment for this week is to begin work on your lexical and syntactical paper and to read chapter 10 in Bible interpretation and do the exam for chapter 10. That gets us pretty close to the end here. Uh, we've got chapter 11 and chapter 12. So it's 12 chapters total. So a few more weeks and we'll be done with our hermeneutics book. Now when you prepare your Bible study as your final project, your observation paper is going to be useful for that. Your lexical and syntactical work is going to be useful for that. You're going to be drawing from this stuff in order to produce your Bible study. And it'd be great if as you're going through and preparing your Bible study that you're reviewing all of the principles for biblical interpretation and seeing how do they apply to my text. Alright, so if you've got Genesis chapter 3 verse 16 as your text, you go and you say, well, have I meditated on the text? Have I just sat and thought about it and, and let God's word speak to me? Have I prayed and asked God to give me insight into the text? 
Am I open to being taught, or am I coming with my own preconceived ideas of what the text means? Am I uh, willing to learn? And then you go through each one of these, and you aim for one interpretation. What's the one interpretation? But what are some of the many applications? How does it relate to people now? And as you go through this process, then, with your text, that is going to prompt you to, to write down and to take notes of all the material that's going to go into your Bible study. And once again, it's better to have too much material and have to cut stuff out than just have a little bit of material and have to use stuff that's not very good, if I can be that honest. So that's a little bit of, of helpful pointers here on your final project. So I'm going to dismiss you and you can take a look at the resources that are over there. Or if you just want to read your text, you just want to start with number one, meditate, pray, be open, start writing down thoughts. However you want to use this time is up to you, whatever stage you are in your, in your process. But I want you to quickly get to the point where you're going to be making use of the commentaries and the study Bibles and the Atlas and all the other stuff that's over here. All right? So, go. Thank you, Pastor. You're welcome. Thank you.